exceptionally great pleasure to welcome Professor uh, Suhans Kalshikov, who's joining us from the University of Pune. He's uh, visiting Chicago for the next uh, few weeks, and so if anybody has an interest in contemporary Indian politics, Maharashtrian politics, caste politics, polls, uh, we're exceptionally lucky to uh, have him here uh, with us. So I, I work in contemporary Indian politics, and one of the um, biggest aspects of that field in the past um, 12 years, I suppose, mm -hmm. has been the um, growth of uh, very informed um, polls done with a very large number of people, sometimes over 30,000 people in national polls that have accompanied elections, that for the first time have given us more of a sense of um, which groups vote for which parties, mm -hmm. why, um, the poor vote more than the rich. One of the findings very often which uh, we've just been able to achieve a level of knowledge about uh, state level politics and national level politics through this polling that we haven't had before. And um, Professor Palshikar has really been at the center of this large uh, initiative and is one of the co directors of. Uh, the big poll that's run out through Lugniti uh, at CSDS in Delhi. So we're really exceptionally uh, lucky to have somebody who's made as big a contribution as he has uh, here today. And um, we've assigned him the very easy topic of uh, making sense of uh, contemporary Indian caste politics, which uh, yeah, I look forward to the answer. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thanks, Stephen. I am indeed very happy to be here amongst you here today and uh, I take this opportunity to begin with to thank uh, the Committee on South Asian Studies at the University of Chicago for making it possible for me to be here for a few weeks uh, to meet people, to consult the library here and therefore I would like to uh, thank the committee, particularly the efforts taken by Stephen and also Brian for making my stay here as comfortable as it could be, although they couldn't help the weather. <laughs> so, um, what I'm going to say today probably would be quite disappointing. Uh, disappointing in the sense that uh, I'm not going to say what is happening to caste and politics in India. Uh, rather, my, uh, my uh, effort would be to spell out uh, what questions need to be asked about the caste and politics interaction in India in contemporary times. Uh, this presentation therefore comes out of a kind of dissatisfaction about the state of discipline in India, uh, the state of political science, the discipline of political science and the kind of questions we keep asking uh, ourselves about Indian politics. That's why uh, this seemingly simplistic and at the same time ambitious uh, title, uh, making sense of caste and politics interaction. <coughs> um, let me begin with two larger contexts which uh, need to be uh, taken into account as a background for looking at caste politics interaction in contemporary India. Uh, though for this gathering, uh, they might sound very elementary. Uh, just in order to situate what, what I am going to say, I thought it may be necessary to spend a couple of minutes on these two things. Uh, one 
entirely outside of the realm of political science perhaps, uh, but then I do not know uh, whose realm it is, is the question of changes in the experiential nature of caste in contemporary India, in India today. Uh, changes particularly uh, in the material dimension of caste as it is experienced in day to day life in India. Changes that are happening to caste due to urbanization and changes in the internal uh, uh, structure of caste and differentiations among various castes, some of the points that I would uh, refer to later on. That is one thing that we need to look at or keep in mind when we are talking about the interaction between caste and politics. The second thing for students of politics again very common is that we are now dealing with politics uh, of a multi-party kind in the Indian context and therefore there is a whole lot of difference between the times when the Congress dominated politics where probably the caste politics interaction obtained in a different manner. You know the story again is very famous here and does not need much elaboration that there is an emergence of a multi-party competition that states constitute the main theatre of politics and therefore politics happens in states at state level and that the social base of political parties is fluid. There is a churning as we call it of the social basis of uh, political parties. It is in the context of these two that one needs to look at uh, the uh, topic that we are discussing this afternoon. Uh, my time frame basically is to uh, look at post Mandal as it is called in the Indian context post 1980-1985-86 period and uh, mainly from VP Singh period onwards when Mandal Commission recommendations were formally accepted by the government of India in part. Uh, since then uh, there has been a lot of discussion about the arrival of what is called OBC politics the resurgence of the backward castes in Indian politics and Indian society generally. Uh, many colleagues and friends have talked about uh, this, uh, notably uh, Yogendra Yadav when he talks about the second democratic upsurge, uh, also Christoph Jafferlo when he talks about the silent revolution and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, one small tract by Javid Alam goes on to argue that this has actually opened up new possibilities for democratization in India and so on. I am not disputing what they have argued. What I am simply trying to say is that there is a certain limitation to their argument and therefore we need to go further. These arguments were obviously made before nine, 2004 uh, looking at the 90s more or less and we are probably 10 years past now that and therefore we need to go beyond this. Uh, or let us say we need to go beyond celebrating the arrival of the OBCs in Indian politics that has happened and that is going to stay. So, nobody is contesting that and nobody is contesting the effect of this phenomenon on Indian democracy. In the sense 1987-88 or the uh, rise of Janata uh, National Front Government uh, of VP Singh in 1989 uh, marks the culmination of the process that started in 1967 uh, as far as uh, Indian uh, politics are concerned. As we turn around and look for the last two decades from 1989 onwards, uh, we notice that in the post-Mandal stage uh, 
there are two moments that require our attention which then uh, take us to the issue that I am going to discuss. Uh, one is that in the 1990s, mid 1990s, in fact when for example Yogendra and others were talking about and I was part of that so I am not disowning that, uh, talking about the second democratic upsurge, uh, much of the energy created by OBC politics was actually uh, let us say usurped or taken away by the BJP because our own electoral data show that in the mid 90s, 1996-1998, a uh, large number of OBCs across the country were voting either for the BJP or for BJP's allies. Uh, this in fact prompted Yogendra Yadav to write another piece uh, titled uh, The New Social Block of the BJP. So ironically, it was a party that was not talking about the OBCs, a party that was not appealing to the OBCs but getting OBC votes at that point of time. That is one which I would like to draw your attention to as a matter of fact. The second is 2007 when the Bahujan Samaj party, the BSP comes on the scene, uh, wins Uttar Pradesh and wins not by getting only Dalit votes or scheduled castes votes but going much beyond that and also consciously going beyond that and saying that we are not a party of the Dalits, we are a party of the entire society. The term they coined this time around uh, has become famous and I guess it should warn students of Indian politics about uh, any exaggerations, Sarvajan Samaj, that ours is a party of the entire society. So they moved from actually Dalit to Bahujan to Sarvajan. And if one looks at this movement, uh, it alerts us to the question as to whether caste is dominating politics in the same way as it has traditionally done in the 1960s, in the 1970s and so on and so forth. Um, I would say that in the last two decades, uh, caste politics interaction has roughly gone through, uh, I mean each political party would have a different, different journey for this, but it has gone through three stages from time to time. Uh, the first could be called as an entry stage when new political entrants, new political parties, smaller outfits, new leaders who emerge at the state level etc. have found caste as a very important political resource to cross the threshold of competitive politics and come into their own at least at the local state or regional level. Uh, so they found caste very important. Not only that, they found that appeal on a sharp mobilizational basis to caste was a very rewarding political enterprise. Probably that gives an impression at least uh, superficially and journalistically that caste is becoming so important and relevant in Indian politics that all politics in India can be explained in the terms of caste or in a caste framework. Um, then that politics enter into the second stage where two things happen. One is uh, some kind of a legitimation of this caste mobilization becomes necessary because you simply cannot go on saying that it is my caste and therefore you should vote for my caste or I am voting for my caste. So some amount of legitimation goes in, the 90s witnessed this, the Mandal uh, controversy actually provides a very useful backdrop to this. As a result of which there is an emphasis on some kind of 
ideological formation formulations such as in indian context the famous term of the 90s has been social justice platform that this is social justice so going even beyond the reservations and going beyond other claims of the obcs the legitimation of this politics of caste mobilization comes in the form of uh, social justice but at the same time there are efforts to build certain kinds of caste blocks because you cannot win elections after all on the basis of support of one caste group or even one caste in your state uh, lalu prasad and mulayam respectively in bihar and uttar pradesh did this uh, remarkably successfully during the 90s uh, combining the construction of a social coalition and invocation of a certain ideological claim to legitimation of caste appeal they did this in the 90s uh, if you look at lalu prasad's politics in bihar though his base originally happens to be among the yadavs of bihar both consciously and ideologically he expands it to the obc constituency but not only that he cultivates very consciously dalits of bihar and therefore electorally speaking his constituency happens to be the dalit and obc constituency all through for mulayam singh in uttar pradesh probably this support of the dalit community was not so easily forthcoming so he then combines his caste appeal of the bahujans or the obcs with the loyite background with an appeal to the muslim community of uttar pradesh and it is of course in the backdrop of the ayodhya controversy that he finds that this community is available for this kind of mobilization so the muslim and yadav combination constitutes mulayam singh's base in uttar pradesh in the 90s having done this and there we come to the third stage both lalu prasad and mulayam singh have faced this respectively in their states that there comes a kind of deadlock because you keep expanding your base to a certain extent and then suddenly the expansion stops whereas in politics if you are doing politics seriously and both of them were doing politics seriously there is a need to consolidate these gains in elections in power sharing arrangements and then step out at the all india level rather than becoming a up leader or a bihar leader you need to be projected and seen and actually recognized as an all india leader that they couldn't do so very easily precisely because they sort of faltered at the third stage uh, mayavati probably shows this third stage skill more than these two uh, in the third stage there are efforts to go beyond the state level and even within the state level expand your social base where caste appeal becomes eminently inadequate uh, it becomes inadequate because not simply because you are following or you are mobilizing just one caste but also because as anyone who has even a cursory knowledge of indian society and politics would realize that your caste does not exist as such in other states and therefore when you step out of bihar or when you step out of uttar pradesh that kind of caste appeal doesn't work so when mulayam singh for example tried to uh, expand his party in maharashtra he couldn't do it because there were no yadavs in maharashtra and therefore for all practical purposes samajwadi party in mumbai 
became a Muslim party. The Muslim League block actually shifted to the Samajwadi Party in Mumbai. Uh, same happens to Lalu Prasad. When he goes to Gujarat, the Rashtriya Janata Dal just becomes a non-starter in Gujarat. Again, for the simple reason that that kind of social constituency is unavailable in Gujarat. Realizing this perhaps, the third stage would constitute then uh, satisfying your core constituency and yet trying to go beyond the question of caste and caste appeal, which Mayavati has admirably done in the context of Uttar Pradesh more recently. Uh, so I would guess that while one can imagine that these are the three stages through which caste politics would probably follow, the complication and that is where the inability of students of politics of India of making sense of it uh, comes in sharp focus is because you have these two or three things happening. Uh, though we say that in a distilled form these are the three stages of caste and politics interaction, each political party would be on a different stage at a given point of time and each state politics would also be at a different stage at a given point of time. In other words, therefore, if one were thinking of this as a simple one, two, three kind of three stage uh, formula, you don't find that happening in every state all the time. Because when some political party emerges in Tamil Nadu, for example, the Vanyar party emerges in Tamil Nadu, but at the same time, politics in Tamil Nadu, caste politics in Tamil Nadu has already entered the next stage. So you have DMK, you have Congress, you have AIDMK trying to adjust to this new phenomenon of a Vanyar party all of a sudden. There is a party which is focused in its caste mobilization as per one caste, whereas others have left behind that legacy long ago and have gone ahead. So they have to come back again and negotiate with this new uh, development that is taking place, uh, which makes politics not only very complex for observers, but also for the actors themselves. And that is where the predicament of both the Congress and the Bharatiya Janata Party as the two main all India political parties uh, can be located, that they would find that they cannot have one all India policy about caste. Congress in Madhya Pradesh would have certain policy, but Congress in Maharashtra would have to have a different policy related to caste because different kinds of caste politics are obtaining in these two different states at a given point of time. Uh, within this framework, then, I am proposing that we need to look for the contemporary moment at, uh, for want of a better term, and since I wanted to give it some title, uh, I would call it the political economy of caste, which involves two things. One, the material dimension of caste in contemporary India today, and two, the political cultural expressions of that material condition. Uh, these two, in a sense, give us some key to the understanding of what is happening to caste and politics interaction. Uh, this would constitute, and that I guess would be the core of my argument, uh, this would constitute four or five factors. First, electorally, and uh, Stephen has made reference to our efforts over the last 10-12 years, to look at uh, what is happening to elections and how people are voting, etc. 
so to begin with that electorally we find that uh, there is a there is a fragmentation people like to talk of caste blocks people like to talk of at least these three or four blocks in indian politics uh, people talk of upper castes then people talk of peasant proprietary or middle peasantry castes and obcs and dalits or scheduled castes adivasis also scheduled tribes also four five as if you want now if you look at these one by one you will find that throughout the 1990s and more so in 2004 perhaps uh, there has a there has been a fragmentation of these caste groups these caste groups either at all india level or in any given state do not vote a block to any single party or alliance uh, if we wish we can go into some kind of who voted whom uh, kind of data later on in the course of the discussion but uh, not to clutter up the presentation with uh, figures and statistics etc i would just try to uh, uh, summarize it and uh, hoping that you would trust in what i am saying if you don't then we can go to the data uh, this is what is happening that upper castes are generally split between the congress and the bjp there may be variations also in some states there would be third players and third claimants for upper caste votes so it's sometimes three sometimes two way split uh, peasant proprietary castes again at least a three way split and this three way split if you look at the all india picture at the state level it would be much more so uh, in the state where i live for example maharashtra the peasant proprietary castes since the 19 mid 1990s have been split four ways at least among four main players now it's another story that these four players then reconfigure themselves and form two coalitions but that is because the peasant proprietary castes are almost in equal proportion roughly equal proportion uh, divided among the four main players in maharashtra and so on and so forth uh, the obcs though we have talked about the obc politics and the obc revolution etc much of this comes from up and bihar but if you look at obcs generally you will find that they have been split at least between the bjp on the one hand and some regional player in each state at least these two and again there would be third player in at least half the states and the scheduled castes the dalits again congress throughout the 1990s taking some larger share of dalit vote but again badly fragmented again going back to something like karnataka or maharashtra you will find that the dalits are fragmented at least in three blocks and now with the rise of the bsp as an important player probably at the all india level and various states in the coming elections uh, one can visualize the possibility that the bsp would be ge getting a major share of the dalit votes in at least some of the states now given this i thought that it may not be very justified to say that there are caste blocks even at the state level the thing that we as students of politics have not investigated in is whether castes or caste groups actually constitute blocks even at the local level today at the constituency level uh, i would say therefore that there is a urgent need 
to get into the constituency studies like the studies that took place in the early 1960s with Rajni Kothari and uh, the team uh, at MIT. Uh, recently, since there is an overemphasis on creating aggregate macro level data, creating all India studies, uh, there has been some neglect of this and that is urgently needed. Uh, second, are there caste blocks or caste, let's say caste coalitions? Uh, we need to make a kind of sanitized picture of caste politics and therefore we keep saying that there is a certain kind of caste alliance or caste coalition in this place or that place, etc. <clears throat> My argument is that there are no social coalitions. There are contingent strategic alliances at some times. There are contingent and ad hoc alliances on the basis of situations obtaining at the local level. Ironically, coalition politics has ensured that there will be no social coalitions of castes. Because coalition politics means that there would be different political parties trying to build a larger social base as a result of which there is no certainty as to which caste group will belong to which kind of coalition. To just give very off the mark and wild examples, imagine a situation that there are two leaders belonging to two different castes in two different districts and two different parties. No. What happens is that leader A helps leader B in that district to get votes from his caste, that is A's caste, and leader B ensures that A gets the votes of B's castes in his district. Now you remember both are from different political parties and this is not imaginary, I am not imagining. I am just trying to put it as an imaginary example. But if you were to go to the central parts of Maharashtra, uh, there are two famous districts, one belonging to the present chief minister and the other belonging to the ex-deputy chief minister of the BJP. Uh, one belonging to the Maratha caste, the other belonging to an OBC community called the Vanjaris. And this is just legendary and common knowledge in Maharashtra that both help each other to re retain their positions in their respective districts. There are also examples in many parts of the country where leaders of the same caste happen to be in two different parties and keep helping each other. In other words, therefore, there are alliances that are formed at the local and very contingent level and not very rational, all India ideological alliances of OBCs. OBCs don't come together as OBCs. Dalits don't come together necessarily as Dalits. The picture that Mayavati's victory gives us is slightly misleading because in Uttar Pradesh there is only one major scheduled caste community which is numerically very large and therefore you find that Dalits, more than 70% Dalits of Uttar Pradesh are supporting Mayavati. This is a misplaced picture or exceptional picture. In other states, in Maharashtra, in Andhra Pradesh, in Karnataka, where there are two or three major Dalit communities, they don't come together as Dalits. On the other hand, they fragment because they are internally in a competitive relationship with each other. And therefore, if Malas are supporting Congress, the Madigas would go out of that coalition in Andhra Pradesh. 
and so on and so forth. You can, uh, I mean, one can go on repeating examples of this kind uh, in every state. So this is the second thing that the nature of caste blocks is contingent, very ad hoc uh, and purely on local situations, based on local situations. Uh, the third thing that I would like to draw your attention to is uh, this question, are material concerns of every caste group common? And we haven't asked that question as yet really very seriously. Uh, we do talk of castes voting for this party or that party, but the question that needs to be asked is actually this. Are there common material interests or concerns of a given caste group? We posited when we talked about the silent revolution, let us say, that the material interests of OBCs are common, that material interests of Dalits are common and so on and so forth. But we need to take into account the amount of differentiation that is taking place within caste and within caste groups, both. Uh, this is an area where we have somewhat scanty evidence and uh, I would uh, probably cite a couple of things and then just leave it at that. Our own 2004 data, if looked merely in terms of the relationship between caste group and occupational status or status of occupation in which people are engaged, uh, shows two things. One, that yes, to a certain extent, there is still some kind of hierarchy of occupation correlated to hierarchy of castes. But at the same time, in no caste group do you find more than 40, excepting Dalits, of course, and I will come to that, excepting Dalits, no caste group you will find that more than 40% people belong to the same occupational status category. In the case of Dalits, though it still happens to be a fact that 52% Dalits are still in what could be described as very low occupations. But barring that, there are concentrations. There are what, is, what can be called as uh, caste occupation clusters. But at the same time, these clusters are being constantly pressurized by the fact that at least more than 60% people don't belong to that cluster. So if upper castes, let us say, uh, 35 to 40% upper castes are engaged in middle to upper occupations. Yet, it also happens to be a fact that 60% are outside of that. And the same is true of peasant proprietary and so on and so forth. Uh, this needs to be disaggregated at the state level and can be seen at the state level, etc. But this alerts us to the fact that though we might like to talk of castes as very secure explanatory variables, castes might be disintegrating materially within themselves. The second uh, piece of evidence that I would like to bring in here is a small, very local study that we have done and I was talking to you about that uh, in Pune. Uh, Pune is a uh, upcoming very uh, large urban center in India. And we just tried to look at what kind of generational or intergenerational mobility takes place across castes as far as occupations are concerned. 
so if you are today in a middle level occupation what was your father doing what was your grandfather doing and so on and so forth uh, and again we found uh, that in the case of the middle peasantry castes their rate of occupational mobility has been very high over the last 3 to 4 generations in fact the marathas the uh, middle peasantry castes uh, have been the largest beneficiaries of this mobility occupational mobility in pune for various reasons which we need not go into today uh, dalits again is an interesting story where there is definitely a remarkable occupational mobility up to a certain limit and then there is a deadlock but remember that there is a movement so if you are looking at dalits in urban india today then definitely they have moved at least one or two steps as far as their father and grandfather are concerned and therefore what is happening is that in each community you find that a number of occupational strata are emerging i don't know uh, whether uh, we have enough studies on these uh, two issues occupation caste linkages and occupational mobility across caste groups but i suspect that if one looks at castes and the internal material experience of castes more carefully we might come across much more evidence for uh, for this kind of a disintegration of material interests now this disintegration of material interests means and there i go to the next point fourth is that then how does caste survive under pressure from urbanization on the one hand and under pressure from this kind of mobilization um, mobility etc on the other hand uh, we find that caste reinvents itself in the forms of identity culture and symbols uh, it might not be an exaggeration perhaps to say that therefore we are witnessing the rebirth of caste associations in indian society today uh, every single caste uh, would have its association and uh, it's not thought to be uh, anything very odd today in india to belong to your caste association Uh, at least there was a time in between let us say between 1960s and till the 1980s perhaps when uh, this kind of carrying your caste identity on your uh, shirt sleeves would not have been very much uh, seen as respectable today one of the entries into the public domain of political activity is to form a caste association be active in the caste association do some work in the caste association and what are these caste associations doing uh, of course they are doing politics by demanding one or two seats or tickets in the elections of course they are doing politics by demanding that they should be given a cabinet berth of course they are doing politics by saying that their leader should be made the next cabinet minister or deputy chief minister or chief minister and so on but outside of doing all this necessary political noise they are doing three very interesting things first they are demanding a cultural space every caste association demands uh, that its cultural identity be recognized 
they are reinventing, rediscovering their own history, uh, their historical symbols, historical figures, and so on and so forth, and saying that, okay, now erect a statue of this leader because he or this person happens to be our caste leader historically. Uh, start a library in the name of this person or rename a library in the name of that person, so on and so forth. The second thing they are doing, and they are doing this very seriously, the first thing, but equally seriously, the second thing, uh, which I would call attempting gatekeeping mechanisms. Uh, they are not, they wouldn't call it gatekeeping though. Uh, what caste associations do is to periodically organize uh, meetings of uh, young persons of marriageable age and try to see if they can be married off within the caste. Uh, again, sociologically, much attention has not been given to this phenomenon of caste associations, particularly trying to do uh, this kind of a marriage bureau job. Uh, typically, I read it as an effort on the part of the leadership of that caste to retain the caste identity, keep it intact uh, by ensuring that young persons from the caste would marry within the caste rather than outside the caste. Uh, and thirdly, part-time functioning as interest groups, which is traditional. Uh, I need not tell this gathering at Chicago about the uh, interface between tradition and modernity. That has been long ago. But they are doing it very seriously. I mean, it's a very interesting example. The Barbers Association in any part of India, but since I happen to know of Maharashtra, I would talk of that. Apart from being doing these two things, because the barbers have found out, barbers is also a caste, it's not only a profession. So they have found out that they have a historical figure and therefore they want to erect a temple of that figure. At the same time, they would do this kind of marriage bureau job. But at the same time, each barber association unit in a given city would also periodically decide what would be the fees to be charged at various haircutting saloons in the city. And goldsmiths again are doing the same thing. They are doing actually a job of a jewelers association while at the same time masquerading as a goldsmiths association as a caste group. Now this is expanding. This sphere of caste associations is expanding. And if we look at it, I thought that we could relate it to the point that I mentioned earlier that as the material commonness of members of that caste starts declining, starts disintegrating, castes find it useful and necessary to come together as cultural associations, as caste associations and then intervene in politics in a number of ways. Uh, and finally then, uh, if you look at the state discourse and the formal official discourse in India, uh, we find a very ironical situation that we have formally recognized caste, formally in the sense, and I am not referring to the reservation controversy here, I am saying that formally recognized in the sense that both in policy framework and in our electoral competitive politics, everyone has recognized caste, so much so that and then I may briefly come back to the reservation issue quickly. Nobody opposes reservations today. You would seldom find any political party of a serious uh, nature in India today 
saying that no reservations are not done the bjp probably would be the first to shout that we want more reservations and every other political party has supported reservation regime which is indicative of recognition of the power of caste in indian society having done that though i think that that precisely makes caste less salient than it could otherwise be because everyone recognizes caste so there is a level playing field it's not as if that you have as in the early post mandal period some people tried to posit that there is obc politics and therefore there are forces which are pro mandal forces in indian politics and then there are anti mandal forces uh, i thought it was more a wishful reading of indian politics in the times of the uh, aggressive uh, hindu nationalist politics that the bjp had unleashed at that point of time it was more wishful to say that bjp since i don't like bjp it is also anti mandal and then to posit a kind of fictitious division which doesn't obtain on the ground never obtained and doesn't obtain today most certainly result this results in populist pro caste declarations by every political outfit or every political party uh, populist in the sense that they are not much concerned with the policy implications of that they are more much more concerned with outwitting the other political party uh, in uh, their uh, appeals to caste sentiments etc now this positioning let us say this formalization of the caste discourse uh, caste language in indian politics caste edm in indian politics uh, ensures that at the level of identity at the level of identification caste will be retained in indian society and in indian politics for the time to come there is a certain amount of recognition uh, state governments after state governments have recognized and named various public sector corporations in the name of leaders of different castes or historical figures of different castes uh, in maharashtra for example again Uh, there is a separate public sector corporation what is called uh, yeah public sector corporation for the welfare of obcs so for the welfare of obcs there is a separate public sector corporation there would be a separate public sector corporation i guess for many other caste groups as well and so on and so forth while this remains when it comes to competitive politics the force of caste gets considerably neutralized that's the point uh, so i am not saying and i will come back to ag- this again and again i am not saying that caste is unimportant but we need to locate what kind of importance caste now has in indian society and indian politics uh, what i am saying therefore is this that it is necessary to bring all these issues in our analysis of the caste and politics interaction uh, we need to then come out of this compulsion that indian politics needs to be explained understood only in terms of caste uh, probably and this may be a bit audacious that the force of caste in democratizing indian politics has now exhausted 
I am not. I, I must say that caste has definitely democratized. Caste politics has definitely democratized Indian politics since 1967. In fact, 1967 is a much and 77 are much ignored moments of this kind of caste uh, de democratizing Indian politics. Uh, probably they were like underground implosions of caste, so nobody noticed them. In India, even today, we are too happy to, for example, explain 1977 as the great second freedom, whatever, etc. Um, without looking at what kind of social mechanisms actually helped 1977 election verdict to happen. It was actually an underground implosion of this energy of the OBCs in North India that made 1977 possible. And then logically, it culminated in 1990, 1989-90. So there is no point in denying that there definitely has been a certain democratizing influence or impact of caste on Indian politics. But that, that, that interpretation need not bind us and our analysis permanently. That's the point. The point simply is this, therefore, uh, that we need to look into some of these issues of caste and politics interaction, particularly since India is now on the threshold of yet another election. And if I may be permitted, I would say that rather than drawing uh, any conclusions and rather than making any sense of caste and politics interaction in contemporary India, I would say that there are three sets of questions that I think we need to address collectively as students of Indian politics. And with that, I will stop. These are the three questions. Uh, and it would be a good strategy on my part to end with questions so that I don't have the responsibility of answering for those three. One is, uh, will caste and to what extent be caste a viable and effective unit of mobilization? At what level? So at what level can one mobilize caste? How much will it be viable? And to what extent will it be viable? Number two, will it be possible to define, shape, and project various sectional interests in caste terms, as we talked at one point of time, Dalit interests equivalent to this, OBC interests equivalent to this. So the question is this, will it be possible to posit that caste constitutes a unit or at least caste group constitutes a unit that actually defines the interests of a certain section or given group of people in the society. And a slight variation of this, thirdly, to what extent will caste represent and articulate social cleavages in Indian politics in the time to come? I will stop there. Thank you. <clears throat>